Just a quick reminder, if you haven't already, you can still take part in our survey. It's a listener analysis, so it's all about what your opinions are on the podcast. And it's important research that hopefully we will be able to um, feed back to you guys again and to be able to give you the results. So if you haven't had a chance, then you can find the link to the survey on our homepage. Um, it's also available on our social media. So you can get that on Instagram, uh, conversations.equinescience, Facebook, conversations in equine science, or if you follow myself or Nancy on LinkedIn or on Twitter, We've also shared the links there. Welcome to Conversations in Equine Science. My name is Kate Acton and I'm joined by Nancy McLean. And this is the podcast where we take equine research and try and make it accessible to horse owners and enthusiasts alike. Remember that with each topic we discuss, it's important to get professional advice before implementing any of the strategies. This week, Nancy and I are looking at a paper that is titled Spaced Training Enhances Equine Learning Performance. This is by Frederick or Holcomb et al. And it is a November 2021 paper. So it is just last year that it was published. And it's a very interesting topic in um, using timing within training to try and get horses more accustomed to a specific training um, condition or obstacle and to see how that timing can influence how quickly they can tackle a novel obstacle. So in this, what they did was they had 29 randomly selected horses and they had the horses repeatedly encounter a novel obstacle task while under saddle. So the horses had to walk through an obstacle. There was a portion they had to step over and also a portion that hung down. And the horses were randomly assigned to either a spaced training condition, which means they did two minutes of work, two minutes of rest, two minutes of work, two minutes of rest, or the masked training condition, which is four minutes of work, then four minutes of rest. So four minutes of getting them to try and go over the obstacle, four minute break, four minutes getting them over the obstacle, four minute break um, on consecutive days. So if they were in the space group, they did two minutes to try and tackle it, two minute break, two minutes to tackle, two minute break. And if they were in the mass group, they just did the four minutes, four minute break. And that was the total. So each horse only did an eight minute session at a time. Um, 15 of 16 horses in the spaced training condition, so that's two minutes of work and two minutes of rest, reached the performance criterion, which is successfully um, adapting and crossing that obstacle. So it was a 94% success rate for the spaced group, whereas the massed group that did four minutes of work and four minutes of rest, only five of the 13 horses reached the performance criterion. So that's just 39% success rate. So overall, the paper found that spaced training conditions um, initiated the horse's first obstacle crossing faster 
So the horses in the mass training condition were a bit slower at actually adapting and getting over the obstacle. And they were also faster. So the spaced horses were faster at completing eight crossings than the horses in the mass training. And overall, task acquisition was higher for horses in space training, despite both groups experiencing the same total work and total rest time per session. So I just thought this paper was so interesting because it's two groups, it's two eight-minute sessions, which is really short and snappy. And just by breaking up where the rest and work periods occur, there is a massive difference in success rate in the actual training of the horse. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting too because I didn't know how human learning um, is so much more efficient with this spacing effect. Although when I look back on my study habits and um, doing papers and all that, I do tend to schedule breaks along the way. I just can't do like a full four hours study session. I have to break it down in the little in increments. And so this paper was seeing um, it has been proven that dogs respond, mice, pigs, and then even honeybees and fruit flies respond to this type of learning mechanism and that's breaking things down uh, into I think they were talking more about intercessions so uh, maybe train one day have a break train the next day or individualize it but this paper is specifically performing intercession which is the breaks within a lesson. And uh, it was interesting that other animals do respond and that when they had done past research, ponies really responded to having adequate days off. So they tend to, to learn better when they're not overdone with work. And I see that in my Welsh pony. I have to really be um, cautious that I don't overdo her or she tends to to maybe get a little sour so in what's interesting about this is when you take clinics and you're in with a lot of people you usually come out of those clinics feeling like you've done pretty well and it may be less the clinician and more that normally you'll do a routine and then you'll go to the center so someone else can go. So you're in essence doing these work, rest, work, rest um, throughout that session. So uh, it's an interesting concept that, you know, I'm going to think more about because I tend to do the space between writing days versus the space between the writing time for one particular day. I think that's what kind of struck me as well, because my initial thought was, like you said, in clinics or in, um, if you go to lessons for those, it's a group lesson, then naturally this rest period occurs. So you kind of do the warm up all together, you do cool downs all together, 
But when it comes to actually, like, say, depending on the level of experience, if you're doing trotting poles, one horse goes over the poles, then joins the back of the group. Then the next rider and horse goes over the pole. And it's an important learning period in that lesson for the rider because you watch each rider tackle the task. So you're learning how they're actually doing it and seeing can you pick up things from them. Um, but it's giving the horse that break in between for them to learn how to do a novel obstacle and for them to adapt and be more confident with it too. And I think because it's so intrinsic in lessons, we easily lose it where we're not in a group lesson and it's just you and your horse and you may have a half an hour and it just mightn't, it might never register on your radar that, okay, we're going to do two jumps. Then we're going to just walk around the outside, take two minutes. Then we're going to do a couple jumps. Then we're going to take two minutes. Cause I don't think, I don't think I would think to do that in like today's age without having read this. Yeah. I would just naturally go in there and try and get the work done. I think it's such a human response. I think I'm with you too. Um, I kind of had to chuckle though, that they had eight horses that on the first day accomplished the task. And I think there were five in the space training condition and three in the mast training condition that reached the performance criterion in the very first session. So those were some pretty uh, savvy horses. And so they kicked them out. So, then yeah. <laughs> but I thought another interesting concept of this was they got a ranch hand who was experienced. He was not experienced though riding these particular horses and he rode all 29 horses. So he did the mast um, training and then he did the space training. And so they had the same riders. So that did not change. And then he also, you know, being a cow hand, he used a lot of negative reinforcements. So you knew there was leg pressure and rain pressure and the same amount in the same style of riding with all 29 horses. So they covered a lot of bases in this. So there wasn't a lot of uh, variables other than the weather. Now this study took place in Wyoming, which 9,000 acre ranch unbelievable That's incredible I can't even think what that might look like and then because when I read it was one ranch I was like oh that seems like a small um like a small data set but then it's like <laughs> well this one ranch had a 200 horse herds and they picked yeah. from that yeah and I mean they were a working cow ranch so um this, they did have the weather, the wind, the elements to contend with as well. So that's really all the variables that there would be. And they would put as many horses as they could through the task every day. But sometimes due to weather, there was a little unequalness between each group because they would do um, spaced or mass or vice versa. And so, um, and I can fully understand they're doing this out outdoors and I don't have an indoor arena. So I kind of have to do the same thing as sometimes it's too muddy or too icy or 
um, you know, too rainy. You just can't get the training in. So um, they did a great job with this. And um, I really was happy to see that ponies respond well because I suspected that. And that initial study on ponies came out back in 1980. So there's not a whole lot of cognitive behavior research out there. So there's plenty of room for future research um, to come up with other parameters that maybe, um, you know, we're, we're not thinking about on, uh, during this um, breaks and how fast a horse learns and why. And I think another element as well, when you were talking about the um, the rider, is that he had no idea what what the researchers were looking for. He just knew he had to get the horse to go through the obstacle. So he was putting the same effort in with every horse just to try and get them to go through it. And that's the one photo that is in this paper, which... I can only imagine is the most stunning view once the obstacle's not there because you can see the mountains in Wyoming in the background. Um, The obstacle was, um, so there's a ground obstacle that the horse has to step over and that's significantly high. I mean, it's like a raised trotting pole height um, and it's wrapped in like a green tarp. So the horse has to really make an effort to step over that. And then there's also an overhead obstacle with a tarp hanging down and some um, tassels hanging off that tarp. So the tarp that's hanging down, the rider will have to duck their head to make it under. Um, It doesn't really affect the horse from that point of view, but the tassels, the horse will have to kind of move through. And I can only imagine like trying to get a horse to go through this that has never seen it before. And the the purpose, the whole idea behind being successful is the horse has to go through this eight times in eight minutes. And four minutes of that session is rest, no matter what group they're in. That might be a bulk rest for the mast group where they have that full four minutes or in the space group, they have the two minute increments of rest. So it really is impressive that it's a tight time frame. They need to pass through eight times. And where the horse was given two minutes of work and two minutes of rest, they were far more successful at going through because they're probably given that time to process what's being asked of them. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that they were actually heading through the the double gates that is their turnout. Now, when they were doing this, um, they had this obstacle up. There were no horses around that could be a distraction or anything. Horses were away. It was just the rider and the particular horse he was on. And then when the training was done, because it is through a turnout situation that looks to be miles big, um, they took this this obstacle down, so it wouldn't they wouldn't be able to habituate to it. Or um, some horses would get more fearful of it if they heard it flapping or whatever. So, mm-hmm. um, oh, I can't imagine getting a thoroughbred to have me yeah. <laughs> uh, 
and go under this thing. I mean, it it's really impressive that 98 or 94% of the space session horses did this eight times. That's incredible. So, and they were mixed breeds. Um, there were no, uh, it was like quarter paint and crosses. So it's not like they took um, any thoroughbreds in, in this trial, but still, I think uh, the fact that they had such a big success rate at the space session, that's pretty impressive to me too. And the, I will add the horses were eight to 16 years of age. So you're not talking babies or seniors. You're just talking a good uh, group of, of good working horses. And they note that it's adding this intercession space training is an important element for trainers to kind of keep under their belt. So if you are a trainer, um, it's something you're probably already doing, as we said, in group sessions. But something to be mindful of in shorter sessions and to try and kind of plan your schooling around it. But there's an element to this too, which I thought is interesting. And it's, it's um, kind of like when we give animals the chance to achieve something um it's a hard it's a hard thing to try and terminalize because we talk about this in humans we've got self-actualization um there's maslow's hierarchy of needs and the highest level of psychological development is where we realize our personal potential and we try and adapt Maslow's hierarchy of needs um, in some ways to animals as well to make sure that we are reaching their needs. And not all species will have the same needs because I think one of them is belonging. So, you know, friendship, family, um, we can actually accustom that to being heard. So in equine, they will still have that need. They need their herd. Whereas in reptile, I mean, some of them just do not like each other. They, they're happier alone. <laughs> so yeah. it, doesn't, it doesn't cross to every species, but at the top of that pyramid is the self-actualization and reaching this personal potential. And you actually do see this in dogs and horses is where I've noticed it the most, but it's probably where I just have the most experience seeing it. And it's almost like their face lights up when they achieve something and they realize what they were being asked to achieve and when you do positive reinforcement training with horses you see it quicker because they're not doing it to avoid something they're not doing it to get away from the negative pressure or the negative reinforcement they're doing it to get an outcome and once they figure out the task you see this light bulb moment and you see it in ponies because ponies are just cunning you know they'll figure out how to open a gate and then they'll prance through that gate, yeah. happy as anything with themselves. And that's that actualization of achieving that task. And dogs, definitely, you see that too. You know, they're happy and excited when they figure something out or if there's something they're unsure of, like if a dog is encountering a frog for the first time, they might be kind of sniffing, sniffing, very wary and then they'll all of a sudden realize it's okay. And they look at their owner and they wag their whole body. And it's them realizing like, oh, this I figured this out. This is all right. I'm confident with this. And it's such a lovely thing to notice. And if it's something 
like the concept is kind of bulky when you move it from human to animal. But if it's something you haven't been aware of before, look for it in your horses because it gives you the best feeling when you see them actually like tackle something. And that's, I mean, we're taking horses that intrinsically are designed to move away from novel things that are scary, you know, not to try and habitualize themselves to it. And the purpose of our work with horses when we're riding them or training them is to get them to habitualize to these things. So watching, it's that light bulb moment, I think, which is just so fascinating when it occurs in another species. Yeah, and I think too, the spaced uh, sessions, um, that I think happened so much quicker because it said once they completed it once, they were so much quicker to do it again and again and again. And the mast uh, session horses were less likely after going the first time to jump in and actually go through it again and again and again. So mm -hmm. um, I think they realized through the small increments of what maybe they were being asked to do. I don't know, but I do know during the rest periods of whether two minutes or four minutes, they were led away by a researcher on the ground and they were led away 15 yards um, or 15 meters from the obstacle. And then they were held there and the rider stayed on them and, and he had to um, cease all cueing. So no stroking, no talking. They just sat there and uh, for two minutes or four minutes, whatever group it was. And then they went back to the obstacle. So something clicked cognitively and it's definitely worth considering because anytime we can make training and learning easier on the horse and safer for us, we're all in a better situation. Definitely. And that was the last point I was going to make is what you've just said, Nancy, pretty much is what they've written at the very end of the article. Um, trained equids are often asked to respond to stimuli and perform in environments that are at odds with their evolutionary programming as prey animals. So any measures taken to increase training efficiency has the potential to reduce stress and injury for both the horse and for the handler. Yeah, I, I think that's wonderful because uh, just, you know, if anybody tries this, breaks their lessons down into rest periods. And, and I don't know, Kate, what, how important do you think the time is? Like if you're doing a 30 minute lesson on a horse, do you think it would be wise to break it down into like 10 minute work, 10 minute rest, 10 minute work, or break it down into five minutes uh, of work, five minutes of rest, five minutes of work, five minutes of rest, and so on to take up your 30 minutes, you know, because most trainers either do a 30 minute or an hour long lesson. So I do know if I've ever taken a lesson, there's a lot of breaks given where you're talking, you know, to the instructor and, you know, you're she's discussing what she's attempting or him, you know, maybe he's discussing what he's attempting. And uh, I 
think, you know, we may um, shorten that work time and even do a little bit more rest, even where you're just teaching the horse to stand still in the center of an arena. Mm-hmm. Are you in the, the lesson person or the trainers having a, a discussion? I don't think it's ever wrong to ask a horse especially a thoroughbred or a little high strung pony to just stand still. Yeah. It might just be difficult. (laughs) Well, I did, I did think about this, you know, how do you practically use this? Because you can't take a break every two minutes when you're doing training. But then it was when I kind of read through the paper again, I thought, okay, well, what they're asking, I think it depends on what level your horse is at. So where you're breaking a horse, um, and we really have to come up with a new term, where you're initially training a horse, um, you probably should do, if you're teaching it something new, it should be two minutes and two minutes of rest. And I think that's how that would work in a lesson. If you're doing your warm-up and say your warm-up is 10 minutes, then it should be 10-minute warm-up and then a minute of rest or two minutes. You don't want to let them cool down. So you couldn't do 10 and 10, but I would do normal warmups, normal working that the horse is used to and accustomed to and understands. And then where we're asking the horse to do um, small jumps or obstacles, that's where we bring in two minutes work, two minutes and rest where we're actually using um, anything that's novel. Because I also try to think, how do you apply this? to a horse that's at an Olympic level, you couldn't possibly be doing two minutes of work, two minutes of rest. No. And I think that's because they're so accustomed when you're training them to new jumps, or even if you've bought actual new poles, they're different colors, you know, with horses that um, are always on the same yard all the time. And you've actually bought new materials, two minutes work, two minutes rest. But I think once they understand and are habituated to it, you can do more work. You kind of move away from needing the rest. I think this works. I think it's specifically we're working the brain and the, when the, we do this more the, so than the body. And you, you, when it's a new situation, that's mm-hmm. those eight horses that achieved it so readily, they, they kicked them out of the study because, you know, they were apparently, it, it was no big deal to them. And so yeah. I, I think you're right. It would be usable uh, according to each individual's circumstances. But if you're taking your horse over, say, a jump that's got flower pots, you know, or a planter on top and those plastic flowers or real flowers are kind of freaking them out, you could use this mechanism. And, you know, I think it probably we would love to hear how it works for you because um, is this open access, Kate? It is. Yeah. So I'll put a link on the homepage so everyone can read through it and remember safety first and then uh, just see what happens. Let us know if your horse um, picked it up quicker um, you know, cause you did this based, uh, sessions or whatever. It's really an interesting concept in their cognition. Definitely. 
Yeah. I think that's everything I had for this one this week, Nancy. Had you anything to add? Nope, that was it. it. Thanks for uh, suggesting it. And I'll definitely have all the links and everything on the homepage. And uh, it was a great read. I would encourage it for all horse owners to have a read of this. Because even if you're just teaching a horse to lead through a scary uh, situation, it might be worth note noting. I don't think this can only be for uh, ridden horses only. And I think... Um... As we were saying, when Nancy mentioned the flower pots, that just kind of clicked with me again. If you are trying to get a horse used to something and you do the two minutes work, two minutes rest, try and cap it at eight minutes. You don't want to flood them in one session and just think because you're giving equal rest, you can give equal exposure. Keep it short and sweet with anything that's novel. So we're ending on good notes. Yeah, that's a great point, Kate. So we'll talk about ending on good notes. That's a good place to end. And (laughs) thanks again for uh, suggesting this and uh, email us. Let us know if there's any research you would like us to do. And um, we'll see everybody next week. Um, And just quickly before we go, we did have an email from Kim, was it? Yes, Kim Lang. Um, just to say she really enjoyed the Tiger Roll um, podcast that's available on RTE. So it's just seven episodes, is it, Nancy, in total? Yep, seven. Wonderful. I'm going to have to listen a second time because Kim is an exercise writer and um, she said it was really, uh, she's in the United States. So she said it was really interesting to hear about the um, Irish and the UK hunts and how that whole sport works. And uh, she enjoyed it. And don't forget uh, this uh, Saturday is the mm-hmm. uh, Grand National and uh, it's at Aintree. And um, so I think you can Google it and get a link to it to watch it live. It's incredible that a horse like Tiger Roll, uh, given his size and um, his, I guess, initial training where he didn't show much, um, ended up winning that race two times. So that's incredible. Brilliant. So thank you, everyone who has done the survey so far. Um, if you haven't done our survey, then this is just the standard plug <laughs> to <laughs> ask you to kindly um, take two minutes to fill out our survey online and for any new listeners. So if you're a listener to, po- to the podcast and you work with horses in some capacity um, or ride horses, then please fill out our survey because the feedback that we're getting through the survey is really important for future research. Um, And other than that, that's everything I have. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Kate. Thanks, Nancy. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye.